Chapter 54 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 54. The fear of betraying by her emotion a secret so long hidden in the depths of her soul restored Consuelo to strength and enabled her to control herself, so that Albert perceived nothing extraordinary in her situation, just as the young Count received her in his arms, pale and ready to swoon. Anzaletto and his guide disappeared among the distant pine trees, and Albert might therefore attribute to his own presence the danger she had incurred of falling down the precipice. The idea of this danger of which he supposed himself to be the cause, in terrifying her by his sudden approach so distressed him that he did not at first perceive Consuelo's confused replies. Consuelo, in whom he still inspired at times a kind of superstitious terror, feared that he might divine the mystery. But Albert, since love had made him live the life of other men, seemed to have lost the apparently supernatural faculties which he had formerly possessed. She soon conquered her agitation, and Albert's proposal to conduct her to his hermitage did not displease her at this moment, as it would have done a few hours previously. It seemed as if the grave and serious character and gloomy abode of this man, who regarded her with such devoted affection, offered themselves as a refuge in which she could find strength to combat the memory of her unhappy passion. It is Providence, thought she, who has sent me this friend in the midst of my trials, and the dark sanctuary to which he would lead me is an emblem of the tomb in which I should wish to be buried, rather than pursue the track of the evil genius who has just passed me. Oh, yes, my God, rather than follow his footsteps, let the earth open to receive me and snatch me forever from the living world. Dear consolations, said Albert, I came to tell you that my aunt, having to examine her accounts this morning, is not thinking of us, and we are at length at liberty to accomplish our pilgrimage. Nevertheless, if you still feel any repugnance to revisit places which recall so much suffering and terror, no, my friend, replied Consuelo, on the contrary, I have never felt better disposed to worship with you and to soar aloft together on the wings of that sacred song which you promised to let me hear. They took the way together toward the Schreckenstein, and as they buried themselves in the wood in an opposite direction to that taken by Anzaletto, Consuelo felt more at ease as if each step tended to undo the charm of which she had felt the force. She walked on so eagerly that although grave and reserved, Count Albert might have ascribed her anxiety to a desire to please if he had not felt that distrust of himself and of his destiny, which formed the principal feature of his character. He conducted her to the foot of the Schreckenstein and stopped at the entrance of a grotto filled with stagnant water and nearly hidden by the luxuriant vegetation. This grotto, 
in which you may remark some traces of a vaulted construction, said he, is called in the country the monk's cave. Some think it was a cellar of a convent at a period when, in place of these ruins, there stood here a fortified town. Others relate that it was subsequently the retreat of a repentant criminal who turned hermit. However this may be, no one dares to penetrate the recesses, and everyone says that the water is deep and is imbued with a mortal poison, owing to the veins of copper through which it runs in its passage. But this water is really neither deep nor dangerous. It sleeps upon a bed of rocks, and we can easily cross it, Consuelo, if you will once again confide in the strength of my arm and the purity of my love. Thus saying, after having satisfied himself that no one had followed or observed them, he took her in his arms, and entering the water, which reached almost to his knee, he cleared a passage through the shrubs and matted ivy, which concealed the bottom of the grotto. In a very short time, he set her down upon a bank of fine dry sand, in a place completely dark. He immediately lighted the lantern with which he was furnished, and after some turns in subterranean galleries, similar to those which Consuelo had already traversed, they found themselves at the door of a cell, opposite to that which she had opened the first time. This subterranean building, said he, was originally destined to serve as a refuge in time of war, either for the principal inhabitants of the town, which covered the hill, or for the lords of the castle of the giants, to whom this town belonged, who could enter it secretly by the passages with which you are already acquainted. If a hermit, as they assert, since inhabited the monk's cave, it is probable that he was aware of this retreat because the gallery which we have just traversed has been recently cleared out, while I have found those leading from the castle so filled up in many places with earth and gravel that I found difficulty in removing them. Besides, the relics I discovered here, the remnants of matting, the pitcher, the crucifix, the lamp, and above all, the skeleton of a man lying on his back, his hands crossed on his breast, as if in a last prayer at the hour of his final sleep, proved to me that a hermit had here piously and peaceably ended his mysterious existence. Our peasants still believe that the hermit's spirit inhabits the depths of the mountain. They affirm that they have often seen him wander around it, or flit to the heights by the light of the moon, that they have heard him pray, sigh, sob, and that even a strange, incomprehensible music has been wafted toward them, like a suppressed sigh, on the wings of the breeze. Even I myself, Consuelo, when despair peopled nature around me with phantoms and prodigies, have thought I saw the gloomy penitent prostrate under the Hussite. I have fancied that I heard his plaintive sobs and heart-rending sighs ascend from the depths of the abyss. But since I discovered and inhabited this cell, I have never seen any hermit but myself, any specter but my own figure, nor have I heard any sobs save those which issued from my own breast. 
Since Consuelo's first interview with Albert in the cavern, she had never heard him utter an irrational word. She did not venture, therefore, to allude to the manner in which he had addressed herself, nor to the illusions in the midst of which she had surprised him. But she was astonished to observe that they seemed absolutely forgotten, and not wishing to recall them, she merely asked if solitude had really delivered him from the disquietude of which he spoke. I cannot tell you precisely, he replied, and at least not until you exact it can I urge my memory to the task. I must have been mad, and the efforts I made to conceal it betrayed it yet more. When, thanks to one to whom tradition had handed down the secret of these caverns, I succeeded in escaping from the solicitude of my relatives and hiding my despair. My existence changed. I recovered a sort of empire over myself, and, secure of concealment from troublesome witnesses, I was able at length to appear tranquil and resigned in the bosom of my family. Consuelo perceived that poor Albert was under an illusion in some respects, but this was not the time to enlighten him, and pleased to hear him speak of the past with such unconcern. She began to examine the cell with more attention than she had bestowed on it the first time. There was no appearance of the care and neatness which he formerly observed. The dampness of the walls, the cold of the atmosphere, and the moldiness of the books betrayed complete abandonment. You see that I have kept my word, said Albert, who had just succeeded with great difficulty in lighting the stove. I have never set foot here since the day you displayed your power over me by tearing me away. Consuelo had a question on her lips, but restrained herself. She was about to ask if Zdenko, the friend, the faithful servant, the zealous guardian, had also abandoned and neglected the hermitage. But she recollected the profound sorrow which Albert always displayed when she hazarded a question as to what had become of him and why she had never seen him since the terrible encounter in the cavern. Albert had always evaded these questions, either by pretending not to understand her or by begging her to fear nothing for the innocent. She was at first persuaded that Zdenko had received and faithfully fulfilled the command of his master never to appear before his eyes. But when she resumed her solitary walks, Albert, in order to completely reassure her, had sworn, while a deadly paleness overspread his countenance, that she should not encounter Zdenko, who had set out on a long voyage. In fact, no one had seen him since that time, and they thought he was dead in some corner, or that he had quitted the country. Consuelo believed neither of these suppositions. She knew too well the passionate attachment of Zdenko to Albert to think a separation possible. As to his death, she thought of it with a terror she hardly admitted to herself when she recollected Albert's dreadful oath to sacrifice the life of this unhappy being, if necessary, to the repose of her he loved. But she rejected this frightful suspicion on recalling the mildness and humanity which the whole of Albert's life displayed. Besides, he had enjoyed perfect tranquility for many months, 
and no apparent demonstration on the part of Zdenko had reawakened the fury which the young count had for a moment manifested. He had forgotten that unhappy moment, which Consuelo also struggled to forget. He only remembered what took place in the cavern while he was in possession of his reason. Consuelo therefore concluded that he had forbidden Zdenko to enter or approach the castle, and that the poor fellow, through grief or anger, had condemned himself to voluntary seclusion in the hermitage. She took it for granted that Sedenko would come out on the Schreckenstein only by night for air, and to converse with Albert, who no doubt took care of and watched over him, who had for so long a time taken care of himself. On seeing the condition of the cell, Consuelo was driven to the conclusion that he was angry at his master, and had displayed it by neglecting his retreat. But as Albert had assured her, when they entered the grotto, that there was contained in it no cause of alarm, she seized the opportunity when his attention was otherwise engaged to open the rusty gate of what he called his church, and in this way to reach Zdenko's cell, where doubtless she would find traces of his recent presence. The door yielded as soon as she had turned the key, but the darkness was so great that she could see nothing. She waited till Albert had passed into the mysterious oratory, which he had promised to show her, and which he was preparing for her reception, and she then took a light and returned cautiously to Zdenko's chamber, not without trembling at the idea of finding it there in person. But there was not the faintest evidence of his existence. The bed of leaves and the sheepskins had been removed. The seat the tools, the sandals of undressed hide, all had disappeared, and one would have said, to look at the dripping walls, that this vault had never sheltered a living being. A feeling of sadness and terror took possession of her at this discovery. A mystery shrouded the fate of this unfortunate, and Consuelo accused herself of being perhaps the cause of a deplorable event. There were two natures in Albert, the one wise, the other mad, the one polished, tender, merciful, the other strange, untamed, perhaps violent and implacable. His fancied identity with the fanatic John Ziska, his love for the recollections of Hussite Bohemia, and that mute and patient, but at the same time, profound passion which he nourished for herself, all occurred at this moment to her mind and seemed to confirm her most painful suspicions. Motionless and frozen with horror, she hardly ventured to glance at the cold and naked floor of the grotto, dreading to find on it tracks of blood. She was still plunged in these reflections when she heard Albert tune his violin, and soon she heard him playing on the admirable instrument, the ancient psalm which she so much wished to hear a second time. The music was so original, and Albert performed it with such sweet expression that, forgetting her distress, and attracted and as if charmed by magnetic power, she gently approached the spot where he stood. End of chapter 54